0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell.
2: Coronavirus cases in the United States are skyrocketing with increases in every state and the number of daily deaths as high now as that awful number was back in March during the original outbreak when nobody was prepared and most of us had no idea what was meant by the abbreviation PPE. Sure, the pandemic is still a joke on Fox News. And yes, the cashier at the grocery store told my girlfriend that the coronavirus is a hoax perpetrated by Bill Gates to make hundreds of billions of dollars. And of course, there's a bit more hope now with the success there has been with potential vaccines. But we may be headed for a lot of the same problems we had at the outbreak. And a big problem... as we have right now, is a, a very precarious global pharmaceutical supply chain that can break at any moment, leaving people without the drugs they need to survive to live. Case in point, remember hydroxychloroquine. When President Trump claimed it was effective against the coronavirus without any evidence besides two small studies that had hit the social media rumor mill, And that Trump was invested in the drug. The demand became so great, those who depended on the supply of the drug to address their lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, well, their pharmacies told them, sorry, we're out, and they would have to suffer. Why? Because of the way our global supply chain of pharmaceuticals is centralized in China and India, And the amount of control those countries and multinational pharmaceutical companies interested in profits far more than people have over who gets what drugs and how much we will learn all about the shortcomings of the supply chain will be the supply chain, you know, that we will be depending upon for a vaccine and a. Very short period of time. We'll find out more about that supply chain in a few when we speak with Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler article, Drugs for the People, Rethinking the Global Pharmaceutical Supply Chain. and is the author of the book, The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. and is a visiting scholar at the Center for Religion and Media at New York University and a former editor-in-chief of that center's publication, The Revealer where she is currently a contributing editor. You can find out more about The Revealer at therevealer.org. Anne's also a contributing nonfiction editor at Guernica Magazine, which you can find at guernicamag.com. Follow Anne on Twitter at Otherspoon, Otherspoon, and find out more about Anne at her website Anne newman.com that's N-E-U-M-A-N-N. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question
0: from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede?
2: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell winter hat. You can see the new Grand Black This Is Hell winter cap and all of our merchandise right now by going to this. This is hell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff, hmm, he is not leaning on survivor bias. Jeff is, what is it now? I forgot what his... Moment of truth is, ah, I got the stupid thing in from last week. I hate find and replace. Uh, Jeff Justin. stands on a principle. That's so what went from it is. Uh,
0: leaning to standing.
2: Yes, stands on a principle. Oh, man, I had so many problems with find and replace today. I It was so annoying. Google uh, Docs really failed me this morning. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest, again, the question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede your eye witness to grief, this is hell, and I am filled with grief today. more of the annoyance variety of grief than the one filled with sorrow, although the former can morph into the latter with frightening ease today, I'm irritated, angry, even because the coronavirus has entered the building. Don't worry, Alex, not this building, but the building where I live, my second floor neighbor. And our three-flat, who lives immediately downstairs from us, has tested positive for COVID-19. Which means I'm freaking out, and likely will be for the next few weeks, as we do everything to avoid contact with our neighbor. We've agreed that we will not be using the same entrance, and if our neighbor is going to be in any shared living space, he'll contact us before entering and after exiting, and I'll be sanitizing those spaces today immediately after the show. So yes, the virus has come to my door reminding me that, yes, this is hell. We got an email to chuck at thisishell.com from Martin about our Election Day interview when we celebrated democracy by discussing anarchism. Martin writes, Dear Chuck, I just wanted to let you know that based on your interview with her a week or two ago, I'm currently reading Hadass Tiers' book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, All I can say is, wow, this is what Marx's capital should have been from the start. Easy to understand, accessible. I'm blown away by her accomplishment. I sincerely hope you share this email with Hadass. So I can say thank you. She deserves all the accolades in the world for this. I did forward your email to Hadass Martin, so... Thank you for that. Uh, Martin continues, as for volunteering for doing remote work on This as Hell Goes, as you have been mentioning on the show, I know HTML. I'm an excellent researcher. I can transcribe interviews for the site. I am local. I think those would be the best areas for me to contribute. If you can think of anything else I can do based on those skills, I'm open to it. Thank you for reading my long, rambling emails on the air and keep fighting the good fight against obsessive-compulsive disorder. I'm trying, kind of, in solidarity. Martin. Thanks Martin and we will be contacting you about doing some remote work and if anybody who is listening right now is interested in working as a board operator here on This Is Hell or doing any remote work on the show please email us at chuck at thisishell.com We got an email from Adam about what Richard was saying yesterday when it comes to the Canopy platform at your public library and accessibility to films instead of having to use Amazon and Netflix and and I uh, got a couple of other emails about people uh, watching German news and wanting a new update on what's happening in Brazil. And I'll try to get th- to those later on the show. If you want to send us your guest or topic suggestions, criticism of the show, both constructive and destructive, just send it all to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. And we'll likely share your thoughts on air unless you explicitly tell us not to, in which case we will honor your request. Again, send us your emails to Chuck At thisishell.com Coming up, our global pharmaceutical supply chain is exceedingly fragile And a pandemic can make it snap We will also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth During this week's moment, Jeff stands on a principle Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new grand black This Is Hell winner hat, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us, but you or you can email it to us, but you have to have your response in by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Live from the Nightmare of Want... This is how the global supply chain for pharmaceutical medicines, the medicine we need to survive, especially in light of a pandemic, is incredibly fragile. And all it takes is a few words by a world leader based on wild rumors. And just like that, much needed drug supplies can vanish overnight. So what does this mean for us as we await a vaccine to protect ourselves? From the current pandemic, here to help us better understand the global supply chain we depend on to live. Anne Newman wrote the Baffler article, Drugs for the People, Rethinking the Global Pharmaceutical Supply Chain. Welcome to This is Hell, Anne.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Chuck. Thank you.
2: You can follow Ann on Twitter at Otherspoon. And you can find out more about Ann at her website, annnewman.com. That's N E U M A N N. Anne is the author of The Good Death, an exploration of dying in America. You start by telling the successful story of. Hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> that is when it comes to the case of Michael McClintock, who you describe as an active 60-year-old who relocated to Tucker County, West Virginia, after more than 20 years in New York City. McClintock realized in February of this year that he, his inflammation in his joints, particularly his knees, had become too much to bear. His doctor prescribed the generic drug hydroxychloroquine, which is, McClintock explained, the go-to drug for people with rheumatoid problems. HCQ is inexpensive in large part because it was a initially used as an anti-malarial treatment and had to be accessible to low-income populations where malaria is prevalent. McClintock has health insurance so he paid only a few dollars a month for his prescription. It took a little time for the drug to do its work, but when it did, around the end of March, McClintock felt like himself again. Yet the peak of the New York City's death toll from COVID was only a few weeks away and the president's obsession with HCQ as a preventative or even a curative for the virus uh, it caused the uh, pandemic, causing the pandemic, was making uh, McClintock ridiculously concerned. And he tells you, I thought it was ridiculous that the leader of the free world was promulgating a untried, untested snake oil cure for a new virus. Do we know to what extent President Trump's remarks on hydroxychloroquine caused a sh- shortage of the drug for the people who need it? I remember there were concerns... But after it was dismissed as a cure, I never heard about concerns over a shortage again. So those who needed HCQ, to what extent were they able to get the drug after it was determined that hydroxychloroquine was not the end-all and be-all for saving us from coronavirus?
1: A lot of people I talked to, Chuck, were able to get their prescriptions filled, but that was after the initial chaos of the current president, um, you know, touting this drug um, and it's not just that he put this out on Twitter, President Trump, it's that he actually, um, pressured Stephen Hahn, who's the commissioner at the FDA, um, was appointed, um, last year. Um, he actually pressured Stephen Hahn to issue an emergency use authorization. And there was absolutely no reason for this. There's, there's nothing out there that says HCQ is going to help with this, um, this pandemic. Um, And so uh, only three days after the issuance of that uh, emergency use authorization, you'll see it, um, the acronym EUA, um, only three days later, it was put on the drug shortage list. And that's a crazy drug shortage list. This is basically the start of this article for me. Um, I was like, "Okay, how many other drugs are there um, that are in short supply in the country? And um, the list is at like 174 drugs right now. So that was kind of the cue to me that, oh, hey, wait a minute, Um, something is going on here that our drug supply chain is so fragile and that a chaotic president can use tweets, um, a chaotic president that can pressure um, particular government agencies and and their current leaders um, can can actually jeopardize the um, continuation of the use of this drug for people who need it for things like um, arthritis or lupus.
2: So if there's so much money to be made in the pharmaceutical industry, what, wh- why would there be a shortage of any drugs? You would think that there would be an oversupply of drugs in order to make certain that they could sell as many drugs as possible. So what explains why the market cannot provide the drugs that we need, why there is any shortage of pharmaceutical drugs in the pharmaceutical market?
1: Well, it's a long story, and um, I can make it really short. Um, this goes back to, say, the foundation of the FDA um, which was established in the 1960s. Do you remember thalidomide, Chuck, that, um, caused deformities in, um, in children? Um, it was a drug used, device in Germany, and it was used, um, to treat women who couldn't sleep while they were pregnant and, and, it and led, morning sickness.
2: Led to deformities in hands and feet, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so this, um, caused the, um, formulation of a process at the FDA. Um, it was actually spearheaded by a woman named Frances Kelsey. Um, and so this process that um, uh, tests the validity and safety of a drug was established. Um, but that um, FDA, that trust in government um, has also, um, or distrust in government, um, the our relationship to the FDA has changed quite a bit over time. Um, And in the 1980s, um, one law in particular was passed called the Orphan Drug Act that um, allowed pharmaceutical companies or incentivized pharmaceutical companies to stop chasing the drugs that had big populations. Um, uh, At at about the 80s, um, we were looking at pharmaceutical companies um, chasing the drugs that they could charge a lot for and um, that were needed by a large percentage of the population. But the Orphan Drug Act, when it incentivized uh, pharmaceutical companies to look at smaller diseases, um, what, you know, rare diseases, um, the FDA, the Act gave them, you know, tax breaks and um, uh, tax write-offs for R&D and other incentives that have now been used in ways that were not initially intended. So the Orphan Drug Act um, is um, leveraged to make as much money as possible off of rare diseases. Um, And uh, it can, It has led to a huge amount. Are you still there?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was, I was listening. I, you know I was just kind of fascinated by uh, this the Orphan Drug Act and how it uh, you said it, it wasn't intentionally made in this way. Uh, and every time I hear people say that these are unintended consequences, I can't help but think, uh, are we certain that they were unintended consequences? Do you know to what degree the pharmaceutical industry was involved in writing the Orphan Drug Act?
1: Well, um, it's strange. I mean, you can, it's a, it's a fantastic story. And I told this one for the baffler as well. Um, the, um, do you remember the TV show Quincy M E <laughs> yes. with, uh, with Jack Klugman? Yes. He actually produced several episodes that, um, pressured the government to pass the orphan drug act. His brother, um, suffered from a rare disease. And so there were about 20 to 25 million people in the country at this point in time who did experience a rare disease. And, um, And I think there was a lot of good intention of trying to treat those individuals. And um, unfortunately, the pharmaceutical company for a long time, as we know, has been pursuing profit Um, and profit has slowly taken over the ethics of their mission. And, um, and so what they've begun to do is take some drug that can be, you know, parlayed into treating a rare disease and, um, it's called salami slicing. So they'll just look for segments of the population, 200,000 people or less. And if the drug could apply to that segment of the population, they can, um, use the orphan drug act to make tons of money, to get tax credits. And, um, and, In that process, and now we're coming back to the article, um, they've offshored a lot of manufacturing. At this point, um, China is the primary source for most of the um, active pharmaceutical ingredients, and India is the biggest producer in the world of, um, of our generic drugs. And so by offshoring all of this manufacturing, United States Big Pharma is saving, you know, Some estimates are 30 to 40 um, billion a year, so it's big money that they're not um, they're not spending on production. um, That's going basically to their profit margin.
2: You write that in our interconnected global economy, a fast spreading amplified rumor, as in the case of hydroxychloroquine, can easily distort markets. How easily are markets distorted, and is that intentional? Does does distortion mean profit, and therefore, markets will be distorted?
1: I think pro- markets are always going to be distorted, whether it's a crazy president um, or it's um, a swine flu, say, um, that, uh, you know, it takes out a segment of the uh, of the swine in China. Um, This is an incident that took place um, a couple years ago. And so uh, a particular uh, drug needed for heart attack patients was immediately limited just because that many um, pigs were slaughtered. Um, There um, is an incident uh, during the 2008 China Olympics where there was pressure on the government to decrease the amount of pollution in the air. So a whole bunch of Factories, pharmaceutical factories, and other factories were closed, but that itself caused a shortage as well. Um, so I think, in part, the fact that these shortages take place is a result of environmental issues, um, political issues, um, rogue, crazy presidents. Um, but it's it's a result of um, the way that the United States government has failed to step in and do what's right for. Um, public health, um, pharmaceutical companies have been allowed to pursue their own profit and what's the easiest for them, and we've let them get away with it. So there's no overarching um, authority that is saying what is best for the people? And um, how do we make sure that those who need these drugs will get them?:
2: I guess that comes to the bigger question then is, why isn't the pursuit of profits good for public health? Why isn't the market suited? For protecting the public health,
1: it's a great question, and I think one of the saddest, um, one of the saddest um, tropes of our public conversation about healthcare at the moment. Um, we know that the free market is just never going to serve. Those ill people who are not considered "quote unquote" productive to society—we're um, um, looking at people who have um, illnesses—and um, my wheelhouse is usually elders, right? And um, and elder care in the United States—we um, have done a very poor job of taking care of those who don't show that they, um, you know, um, in a in a monetized way. Contribute to society. And so we've kind of written them off. We've monetized everything. And um, it's a real tragedy. It says a lot about who we are as a as a country at the moment, and and maybe um, as a human population at the moment. Um, But we we know that not everything is going to be best under a profit driven market. Um, We also know that consumer choice isn't going to save us, right? Like, um, remember the controversy over plastic straws? For a a minute there, we were all like, oh, if we all stop using plastic straws, we can save the planet. But that kind of consumer choice mechanism is never going to get us where we need to be. It's going to take, it may raise awareness, but it really takes regulation at the government level, particularly the federal level, to um, change any of these to change the ethics and and trajectory of any of these policies.
2: You write that during this year's presidential election season, one could sense that American voters dislike and distrust the big drug companies. Senator Bernie Sanders could count on his audiences to roar when he called for stricter regulations of the crooks who run big pharma. President Trump as well incorporates anti-pharma rhetoric into his standard stump speeches. The current state of the country's pharmaceutical affairs is largely the result of the industry's lack of foresight and its profound greed, as well as the federal government's unwillingness to regulate the renegade industry so if this industry is unpopular if politicians of every stripe are going after pharmaceutical companies rhetorically what explains their unwillingness of becoming the political hero why wouldn't either party want to be the one that scores those political points by reining in the very unpopular pharmaceutical industry what do you think is the biggest obstacle
1: oh god it's probably contributions to politicians I mean, uh, we all know that politicians can say a lot of things, but actually enacting a change is really difficult. There's a particular aspect of um, pharmaceutical industry's myth-making that I think is also a real challenge to addressing their excesses. And that is the, oh my God, if you regulate what we charge for drugs, research and development is going to suffer. Um, we hear it again and again. Um, so we can't, you know, we can't decrease the price of the shots for rabies because research and development at any of these uh, uh, giant pharma companies is going to be harmed. Um, there was a drug that came out a couple of years ago that um, what is it? Zolgensma, um, and it costs 2.1 million per dose. There's no ceiling on the what any pharmaceutical company can charge. Um, But they said, you know, we need this because this drug um, took a lot of research and development. And you know, there are studies that have since come out that show that the the NIH, basically the National Institutes of Health, does most of the R&D for new drugs. And even if these pharmas do end up doing the research, it's often quite small companies that are then purchased by the big pharmas, kind of gobbled up um, in acquisitions. So this is a lie and it's a lie that um, is very powerful. Um, We like being the best producer and and developer of drugs in the world. We like to think of ourselves in this exceptional way. Um, And so we've kind of kneecapped ourselves every time we want to hold uh, the big pharma accountable, but also they're just an enormous industry that make incredible amounts of money, and we just don't have the political will, or I would say the political culture that has its ethics and and values um, in line with, say, the benefit of the people um, to really make that regulation happen.
2: You write that drug prices are so high, as you were just saying, Big Pharma says, because the cost of research and development is so high. We can't lower drug prices, they tell Congress, because the reduction in revenue would end America's drug innovation. And therefore, raising drug prices would end the global dominance of the American pharmaceutical industry. Legislators tremble at the thought of losing this imagined exceptionalism, an exceptionalism that you were just touching on. but. What do you mean by, and how do you see this as imagined exceptionalism? Because American exceptionalism and innocence is something that we talk about a lot on this show. So, how do you see this as imagined exceptionalism?
1: Well, we all know that there are many ways to define exceptionalism. Um, I talk a lot about India uh, and India's patent regulation in this piece, and I think we could call exceptionalism, actually passing and enforcing laws, uh, creating a culture that keeps drugs affordable for every individual in the nation. I mean, that could be a kind of exceptionalism. But this idea that we are, you know, we see it a lot in the tech industry, we're the first to create this platform. Um, We have these crazy rich billionaires because of their Crazy innovation, Elon Musk, etc. Um, and we kind of like to put these individuals on pedestals um, and to say that they are innovative and they are what makes us unique. And I think we've got our we've got our priorities mixed up. Um, we could call exceptionalism universal healthcare. You know, we could call exceptionalism a living wage. But instead, we choose to define it in a way that um, creates enormous disparity and and an incredible amount of pain.
2: You write that a recent stat study of Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, two of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the United States, shows that the costs of innovation make up a much smaller percentage of the company's budgets than they're letting on. In fact, historically, most of the industry's innovation, as you were saying, is done by the National Institutes of Health or small companies that are subsequently acquired by Big Pharma. But Pfizer's spokesman Jerica Pitts, in announcing the success they're having with a still yet-to-be-approved vaccine, That has shown effectiveness in studies said Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine development and manufacturing costs have been entirely self-funded. We decided to self-fund our efforts so we could move as fast as possible. And they insisted they were not part of... The project warp speed that the Trump administration has come up with. So is the is the Pfizer vaccine the outcome of a completely privately resourced vaccine or is the statement misleading in some way? Because when Pfizer made that statement, I found it it, was hard to believe, if not entirely misleading.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what, um, what line in their budget that came from. I mean, they could be writing it off for, um, for donation, for all, all we know. Um, they also um, are looking not just at the U.S. market, but at the global market. If they are the first to get this vaccine out there, if they can figure out how to transport it and keep it cold and make it work, um, they're going to do very well. Um, I mean, this is the aspect of vaccine distribution that makes me anxious. I think um, the FDA has lost a lot of credibility during this administration simply because they've buckled to Trump's pressure. And I think that um, if we do get a vaccine that people are confident in using, um, we may see reticence in people to use it. But I think we're also going to see a global, um, a global desire to get their hands on this drug. So How quickly can it be manufactured? How easily can it be transported? Who are going to, you know, how do we set up a triage for who receives this first? Is it gonna look like, um, I don't know, we're doing early tests on, say, the most vulnerable elders in nursing homes or for frontline workers, or is it actually we're going going to establish um, uh, a means of distribution that is equitable and safe um, and then how do we how do we decide what we sell it to France for? And I say we because um, this is what Pfizer's going to be doing. Are they going to go for the highest bidder? Um, and I think all of their behavior after this point, after the vaccine is um, in use, after it's approved, um, is going to tell us what Pfizer's priorities are. And I don't think there's any doubt that profit is their motive, regardless of how they funded this.
2: The fragility of the supply chain is incredible. And you point out many, many points in the whole supply chain where it is fragile. You write, who can know if uh, Trump's promotion of hydroxychloroquine was also related to his family trust investment in Sanofi, the French manufacturer of Plaquenil, the uh, brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. So I don't want to get into some discussion of if he did profit or not or if that was his motivation or his incentive in any way. But how vulnerable is public health to powerful investors in the pharmaceutical industry manipulating the market for their own profit and advantage? How vulnerable is it to rumor and wild speculation?
1: Oh, um, well, (laughs) we saw the run on uh, hydroxychloroquine. Where um, that was mostly doctors um, or a majority of those um, initial prescriptions were made by doctors to themselves and their family so so we know that fear is incredibly powerful and um, and I think we're going to see fear and, um, and um, reactionaryism or reactionism what's the word I want um, a crazy reaction to um, the first vaccine that comes out um, and of course, um, you know, there are already people paying for their own COVID tests all over the country. Um, what, how many millions of people don't have simple health care right now? How undercounted are the numbers of people who are dying of COVID every day? I mean, this is um, this rampant pharmaceutical grift is really just uh, a byproduct of a lack of focus on public health over a long period of time. Um, we can blame Trump all we want, but this is, um, you know, a, a long-term project on, um, on the side of the GOP to really take as much money out of public health and services as possible to thwart universal coverage for individuals. And so we're looking at a much larger problem than um, there was a blip in the access for lupus patients to hydroxychloroquine Um, At the beginning of the pandemic, this is this is an enormous problem.
2: I was thinking that the reason that so many people listen to President Trump and took his advice when it came to uh, what pharmaceuticals they should be taking. It's because they it isn't because they have an intense amount of trust in Donald Trump as much as they've lost trust in the pharmaceutical industry. What happens to public health when we have lost trust in the pharmaceutical industry?
1: Oh well, it's an enormous problem. We know that they're not here for public health, <laughs> um, and and so it's very hard to imagine um, uh, trusting an industry that doesn't have our well-being in heart. You know, if the pharmaceutical industry actually had the heart that they want to claim, they would be pressuring the United States to change um, drug law and, and drug access and and healthcare um, and uh, insurance coverage. Um, but the industry is not at all doing that. Um, and so um, their actions are, are speaking loudly, particularly right now when, um, when we're looking at a quarter of a million people dead.
2: You also point out that uh, you write how the availability of medicines can be shaky even in non-pandemic times. In 2008, the Beijing Olympics caused a spike in drug shortages and prices in order to clear the famously foul air over Beijing. Officials sank $20 billion into cleaning up emissions in part by shuttering dirty factories. Heavy industry was affected as were plants that made pharmaceutical ingredients. Global pharma companies were forced to pay higher prices for active pharmaceutical ingredients or put production on hold. South African manufacturers who operate in a fixed price market, as well as Indian manufacturers, were severely affected. How difficult would it be to lessen the kind of centralization that we have of pharmaceutical production within China and India? How difficult would it be to lessen China's impact on global health via pharmaceutical production? Or does the market demand the kind of control that China has as it is what is best for global pharmaceutical profits?
1: well, the market can make its demands, but we don't have to listen, right? Um, There are examples of countries all over the world that don't listen to market demand, that understand that um, there are some people who just will never be able to afford the drugs that they need because they are not out there earning or because they are um, experiencing some sort of permanent or long-term disability. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why people aren't earning enough money to Uh, pay for the drugs that they need. Um, And there are ways to change that system. Um, We just don't have the political will to do it at the moment.
2: And you write how problems with drug affordability, uh, quality and access, as the FDA's extensive list of drug shortages shows, are so common in the United States that last October, California Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, chair of the Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee, hosted a hearing on the hidden health care crisis in our country the inadequacies of the drug supply chain. She uh, stated at that meeting that this will affect us all and we're not talking about it. You add the representative highlighted three causes of the crisis, shortages that cause rationing, subpar manufacturing that causes recalls and shortages, and over-reliance on foreign production. In a statement on her website, the congresswoman characterized the problem as a public health and national security risk. Is over-reliance on foreign production of pharmaceuticals A national security risk, but good for profits.
1: Yeah, it's great for profits, but um, that also makes us all susceptible to um, to a world where we can't get the drugs we want. Um, I mean, listen, we could bring manufacturing back to American shores. Um, Absolutely. There's no nothing that prevents us from doing that except for profit margins for big pharma. Um, uh, So so. A lot of the reason why we are manufacturing abroad are the usual reasons, right? Um, it's uh, uh, low labor costs, um, but it's also the ability to get around environmental standards. We were just talking about China clearing the air by sh- shutting these factories. They're very polluting factories. And you know, if, we, um, if that manufacturing was brought to American shores by these pharmaceutical companies, um, it would change their profit margin. Um, and that's what we're looking at. This is, this is money. We are reliant on a few countries, um, uh, by choice, by the industry's choice
2: your writing is just fantastic on this subject because i didn't really know a lot about the weird ways in which the system is fragile including you write how other disease outbreaks can also cause drug supply shortages last summer as you were pointing out earlier the outbreak of deadly african swine fever in china caused the mass death of as many as 150 million infected pigs this resulted in a shortage of the blood thinner herapin derived from pig intestines which is used by heart attack patients if seemingly unrelated outbreaks can have a negative impact on our access to needed medicines, how vulnerable is our uh, pharmaceutical supply chain to disease
1: oh we're super we're super <laughs> vulnerable. I mean this is something that doesn't often get reported on um, and and thanks for the um, for the um, kind words um, but I have to really give credit to The Baffler, which let me start a series called Drug Money um, before the pandemic and has, since the start of the pandemic, allowed me to kind of pursue these larger questions about how vulnerable we are. Um, My editor, Dave Dennison, there is like, um, he lets me run with some of these things and then, you know, helps me find shape. Um, So we knew we wanted to write about India um, and the way that the Indian Supreme Court is constantly battered there by big pharma saying, give us, we don't want you to make generics out of our, you know, money earning, um, um, uh, uh, drugs. And so, um, and so it's a great example to, to look at countries like India, to look at how, um, how profit can be saved for big pharma, um, and how susceptible we are, all are to any kind of environmental change, any, you know, the swine flu, um, a a wily dictator who wants to shut down factories. Um, And um, these stories just aren't being told. So, um, So I think we need much more reporting on how precarious drug access really is.
2: The Supreme Court case you're talking about in India Was the case where they said no to Novartis Novartis wanted to have one They wanted to make the generic drug That was the equivalent of theirs To be taken off the market So they could only sell their much higher priced drug The Indian court decision rejected Novartis's claim That their branded drug promised therapeutic improvement Over the generics already accessible As noted by the intellectual property watch website The Supreme Court affirmed that India Has adopted a standard of pharmaceutical patenting that is stricter than that followed by the United States or the EU. This is because so often uh, pharmaceutical companies get uh, patents when they pretty much add absolutely no value to an already existing drug. What is the likelihood that the United States will not be strict in their giving out of patents to pharmaceutical companies when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines?
1: I just, at this moment, I can't imagine that we're going to be doing anything different from the way we've done it in the past decades. Um, It would take a huge change of government Um, and and I I can still hold out hope that something like this horrible pandemic um, will change the way that we look at public health. But so far, we just haven't seen that reaction. And it's been really shocking. Um, At the very beginning, I was certain that um, that, you know, the the people in power in the United States would kind of put down their toys and say, oh, shit, we have to pay attention. Where we we have to get this right, people are dying, and we haven't seen that, and um, and that really gives me no hope um, uh, of of uh, an improvement or a restructuring of how we um, fund and um, and and tend to public health. Um, yeah, you, were, you, you mentioned that Novartis case. That was in 2013 in India. And Novartis basically said, listen, we don't want you to have this generic. They were charging like 70000 a year or something for this drug. And India came in and reverse engineered the drug, the label drug, and produced a generic that they could provide to their citizens for $2,500 a year. Um, and that's a huge amount of savings. It, it determines who lives and dies. Um, but Novartis... Looks so heartless in this case. Um, like, of course, we don't expect pharmaceutical companies to operate for nothing. We don't expect them to be, you know, um, a, a charity organizations. Um, uh, but, but to go to a country and say we we want an extra what sixty five seventy thousand dollars for this drug a year, and you're preventing us from getting that money. We don't care if people will die. That's a bad look, and um, and yet, um, thank goodness, India said no. Um, And yet, we're hamstrung, right? We we see these crazy dynamics. Um, Our generics are still produced in India, Um, but you know, there's always a trade-off. It's going to these are countries where there are limited labor laws and, um, you know, environmental standards that can be surpassed by or can be gotten around by pharmaceutical countries. So um, or pharmaceutical companies. So we really it, it's not a good situation. Um, it's got an evolutionary history to it. Um, and we've just been gutless or unmotivated to make the right decisions for public health.
2: How devastating then have low-cost, more accessible drugs been to the Indian pharmaceutical industry? We're told here by the U.S. Big Pharma that if they had to lower their prices, it would be devastating. They wouldn't be able to do the research and development, even though most of that research and development, as you point out, has been done by the National Institutes of Health. So how devastating has this been to the Indian pharmaceutical uh, industry in offering lower-cost drugs to the people?
1: To which I laugh, right? Um, There are multiple of estimates as to the size of the Indian pharmaceutical industry, but it's roughly 33 billion a year. I think they're doing fine.
2: 33 billion. I think that's I think that's plenty, you know, uh, it, one of the other thing I didn't really understand about uh, the situation, the disconnect when it comes to India is sure the court decision makes it so the drugs are more accessible to the poor, but their labor rights and the wages and the safety and worker protections that they have. That low standard that they have, that is what attracts big pharmaceutical companies into their country to develop, to create, to make, to manufacture pharmaceuticals. So to you, what explains that disconnect between courts and the people wanting lower cost drugs while at the same time providing the poor working conditions that allow pharmaceutical companies to exploit workers in the way that they do in India?
1: Yeah, well, um, to India's credit, we know that a living wage in the United States is always going to be more than it's going to be in India. Um, We're just at that point as a culture, um, and I don't see that changing drastically anytime soon. So for American companies to manufacture elsewhere, the labor costs are always going to be a savings um, uh, the profit margins are always going to be higher. Um, and also we're talking about cross-cultural awarenesses, you know, um, what was the clothing manufacturer? I just heard in the past few days, they got caught with their pants down because their factories abroad were, you know, locking women in facilities. Um, this is stuff that goes back to, um, you know, the, the 18th century, 19th century in the United States, but we're also, Looking at, you know, practices that are very common in the United States today, um, look at Amazon people working, you know, in horrible conditions um, and getting COVID left and right. Right now, the, the United States government doesn't even have the will to um, pay people to stay home. We don't have, we don't have sick leave <laughs> for the most part in this country for, for service industry people. Um, grocery store clerks are wonk- working in unsafe conditions. So while it's easy to say India's not taking care of its people, they may give them generic drugs, but you know the, the, the trade-off is that they've got poor labor practices. We're seeing poor labor practices here as well. It's not as though we're any more advanced. Um, we just cost a little bit more.
2: We have been speaking with Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler article, Drugs for the People, Rethinking the Global Pharmaceutical Supply Chain. You can follow Ann on Twitter, at Otherspoon. You can find out more about Ann at her website, annnewman.com. That's N-E-U-M-A-N-N. And everybody, you got to go read this article, because even though we've been talking about it for about 40 minutes, uh, we have only touched uh, the very beginning, very top layer of it. There's The point that you make about how patent law is a legacy of the British Empire and colonialism, I think it's so important for people to remember just the impact that colonialism has had and continues to have, even though so many people think that that is an era that is in the past. So this is exceptional writing, Anne, and I really appreciate you being on the show. But- As we do for all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question you may hate to ask, that we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience will hate your response. (laughs) And considering how the market reacted, how it responded to the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak, how do you think they will respond to the next pandemic? Do you think the market learned anything from their response to covid
1: no. <laughs> the, market didn't, the market doesn't learn. The market is not a being. It is a collective of um, people that are driven for purposes that are outside of human well-being.
2: <laughs> so I, I'll take that as a no then. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for being on our show. This really is fantastic writing. And I'm going to look for more of your writing on the uh, dark money situation that's happening with Big Pharma and your writing at The Baffler. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
1: You're wonderful, Chuck. Thanks for having me. (laughs)
2: Thank you. Take care.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash Hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, and get exclusive access to our weekly podcast, which uh, streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Friday, and is podcast shortly shortly after the same place. This week on Patreon, we are continuing our series of playing interviews we did shortly after Barack Obama became well was elected president to remind us all of the hope we had for change and how we had to settle for the neoliberal status quo that never holds those in power accountable for their past misdeeds. No Obama didn't prosecute Bush administration officials for the crime of torture or lying us into war just like Joe Biden has already said he will drop investigations into Trump administration officials. Once he takes office This week we are sharing our November 24th 2008 conversation we had with Kenneth Saltman The author of Capitalizing on Disaster Taking and Breaking Public Schools An editor of Schooling and the Politics of Disaster As we spoke with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire yesterday On their book Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door On the attempts to end public education Why not reflect on how the Obama and Biden administration Was very destructive to public schools In an attempt to build bipartisan consensus census with conservatives who want to impose a system of everybody at each other's throats and they want to get that everybody at each other's throats starting in schools at a very, very young age. Ken had just posted an article he had written with past This Is Hell guest Henry Giroux titled Obama's Betrayal of Public Education, Arnie Duncan, and the Corporate Model of Schooling. Also on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, you may have heard me mention this earlier, but I'm freaking out because COVID-19 has arrived at my front door, has entered the building, gone to the floor just below us, and found a home in the respiratory citizen, citizen system of my downstairs neighbor. But you can only hear that 2008 interview with Ken Saltman on how the Obama administration would contribute to the dismantling of public education and me losing it over the pandemic by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff sta- stands on a principle producing this week's show is her today's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? Alex, do you have answers to this week's question from
0: hell? Yeah, I'll uh, wrap them up. Uh, David S. says, I refuse to concede that the Beatles are better than the Kinks. Mm. Joshua L. says, in most realities, this answer wins me a hat or two. (laughs) Two? Uh, Then via email, DM, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you refusing to concede? Dan Z. says, Bush v. Gore. Flying Needle says, I refuse to concede losing the question from hell every goddamn week. Even that one time I had the best answer, Chuck thought I had already won the prize and stole it right from my entitled white fingers. <laughs> what are you refusing to concede? Dan H says, I refuse to concede that anyone who runs for president could ever be a decent person. Neil C says, Unfortunately, my bullcrap job. Adam B says, Hope, what are you refusing to concede? The war on Christmas, says our friend's impregnable reader. <laughs> and finally, Evar S says, What do you refuse to concede? That this is hell. The person with our
2: favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell winner hat. You can check out all of our new Gray on Black stuff at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page, you can email it to us, you can tweet it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing the winner of the new Grand Black This Is Hell winner cap. Anything else I want to mention here? No. Another end of the world is possible. This is is hell. I know you have half on the line.
1: One, two, you know what to do. Next. One
3: more time. The of truth, moment of truth, moment of truth, moment of truth. It's the principle. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Irrational capitalism. There are those of us who complain that capitalism and its corporate and financial pillars only consider, or consider way too much, short-term gain over long-term effects. I held this belief for a long time myself, but that would be too simple for capitalism. Capitalism is cunning. It's suspicious and watchful. It has principles now. Principles perhaps it always had, but now it's adhering to them, as they say, big time. It's not necessarily that capitalism leads its misbehaving leaders to seek something other than their own advantage. It's that financial profit isn't the only profit to their advantage. Yes, if they could have peered into the future, they'd have seen that raping the earth would eventually render their raw materials more expensive, Yes, they'd have seen that impoverishing as many of the public as they could push around would cripple the very consumption that drove the economy. They'd have seen that gaming for short-term future payoffs in a numerical gambling universe rather than long-term sustainable development in the real world would lead to bubbles of imaginary accumulation that would explode over and over, causing ever more volatile booms and busts. They would have seen that jockeying to narrow and unleash the wealth-accumulating class would lead eventually to the loss of their health and heads. But none of that would have changed their behavior. A lot of these destructive achievements required dedicated forethought and scheming, projecting well into the future. So why did they not heed projections of negative outcomes, negative even for themselves? Beginning with the carving up of the commons in England in Shakespeare's time, To the Bard's advantage, I might add, and continuing through last week or so's successful cramming of Prop 22 down California's esophagus, corollary and coeval to the profit motive has been the fight for the sovereign control, the sovereign right to control, control rules as well as resources, human agricultural, mineral, and otherwise. Now, you might suppose this is not separate from the profit motive, and in many cases it's not, but it also arises from its own overriding principle. It's a principle of material philosophy with an invisible, therefore deniable, spiritual element. Weber wrote the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism for a good reason. It seemed to him that an epistemology of spiritual accumulation of merit had been transformed into a worldly, rational one of accumulation of wealth. My feeling is, the spiritual dimension has never been fully subsumed, sublimated, digested or dispersed. My feeling is, it's still the divine right of kings to own everything within the boundaries of the realm. My feeling is, and my feeling is, and my feeling is, and that's how I feel. Because it's all about feelings now, isn't it? Our feet have left the ground. The reality-based view of events has been ignited and sent off into the fjord for an honorable Viking burial. It's ironic that those who've told everyone but themselves to F their feelings, our feelings are not their problems, have completely surrendered logic, evidence, rational discussion, and reality for whatever their demagogues tell them because they feel it's true. This abdication of reason and inquiry has reduced the worldview of a horrifically large portion of our fellow citizens to a comedy routine. Yes, if someone was defying subpoenas and court orders and blocking witnesses, it would show he had something to hide. But uh, Trump's defying subpoenas and court orders and blocking witnesses. Oh, well, then he, he must have a good reason. Since the partitioning of the commons, up to today, the principle has been to wrestle common resources, those available to anyone regardless of wealth or status, away from the public. Privatization has been the driving force of capitalism since it first began to recognize itself as an attitude. Somebody has got to own it, preferably me, says one capitalist, but at least somebody, say all of them, They've tried at every turn to take from the people their land, their labor, their bodies, their rights. This is the method, and the principle is to maintain a distance away from and above reasonable fairness. It's the divine right to get away with crime. It's the divine right to buy your way out of trouble. The divine right to avoid accountability and ignore the authority of another's rights not to be screwed over. To show them who's boss. It's the right to kill to win, to deprive, to amass surpluses that would stagger the Inca, the Pharaoh, the Queen of Sheba, and the Emperor of Rome. Much money has been parted with to prevent unions from forming, not because of the money it would save, but to prevent the workers getting a foothold from which they might eventually, sometime down the road, climb to a more commanding position. Oil pipelines are routed through tribal lands, not because it's the most efficient route, not even because the oil itself is so profitable. It's to show the indigenous people that their claims mean nothing. The capitalist retains the right to spit in our faces and tell us it's raining. The people have made it their business in the West over the last four centuries to shape government into a tool for helping their communities with material and organizational support to carry on everyday existence. You'll notice that the parts of the government astroturf tax protest movements focus on destroying are the ones that provide money and services to the general public. So much about being a decent person is offensive, puny, trivial, or laughable according to the religion of capitalism. It is blasphemy to speak of the rights of the public. It's blasphemy to claim any being's right to anything unless someone richer and higher than them acknowledges that right. The winning capitalist has the right. It's the right to order killing and the right to profit from death. It's the right to judge, to decide, and to crush another's dreams. That is the religious principle now. Milton Friedman wasn't an economist. He was an acolyte, a priest, and eventually a prophet. His prescriptions for economy rely, without stating it plainly, on the defeat of unions and other communitarian movements and on the gutting of whatever power they might have acquired between the time of the New Deal and whenever the capitalist thinker is thinking. Any talk or action that crosses the boundaries of the spiritual realm of capitalism must be dealt with, with whatever cruelty is required to make the point. Who cares if solar power is dirt cheap now? We're not going to abandon fossil fuels just to save money. It's the principle of the thing. Who cares if those doing the real work of caring for the outrageous number of plague victims during a pandemic are themselves falling ill? Government is not the answer because the principle we're defending is exactly that. Government is not the answer. Who cares if it would be more efficient to do away with the private medical insurance structure? It's an institution, an institutional monument to an ideal, the ideal of privatization at all cost. This is why it's so easy to imagine Biden's accession to power having little to no effect on the public state of well-being. The real solutions are all forbidden by the national religion, a spiritual illness that's spread throughout the world, though nowhere is it nearly as virulent as it is right here in capitalism's holy land. Biden won't solve the problems of record poverty, hunger, disease, and homelessness, because the amount of money he'd have to channel away from the overseers of possibility is so great, it's almost forbidden for him to entertain the inkling. So of course the people will rise up, and when the police come to put down the unrest with their religiously sanctioned violence, it will again be blasphemy for Biden to consider for the wispiest sliver of a moment that the police ought to serve the people, not beat them back into servile submission. There are those who say the market can be enticed by profit to do the right thing. My cousin, who's the kind of mad genius I once hoped to be, has floated a proposal, Who is he to float a proposal? He's a mad and joyous genius who is teaching various subjects on the Micronesian island of Yap. He has a PhD and founded an institute of which he is the entirety. From the island of Yap, he floated in a press release picked up by the Associated Press Wire, a proposal to entice energy companies using the carrot of profit away from fossil fuels toward geothermal energy of which he's concluded there is enough to power the world economy for millennia and the energy companies can still frack and destroy a little bit, which they enjoy, as long as that fracturing of the Earth's crust is done to make heat within the planet available for the generation of electricity. He's thinking practically, but I'm sure he's being too idealistic. Practicality, efficiency, sustainability, gentility toward the environment, these aren't the concerns of the energy capitalists. They take a back seat to their concern to control land and resources, to maintain that which they already control, and to achieve control over new lands and new resources they don't yet command. Profit is not the motive. It's the power to dictate the feeling and spirit of the agenda. I would be overjoyed to be proven wrong by events. My cousin is on to something. He's made other dreams of his a reality, like having an institute, and it would not surprise me if this proposal found its way into the world at some level. We say follow the money. We say look for whose bread is being buttered. I would like us to say whose right to be above the law is being threatened. I'll go on, on a limb and say that within my lifetime, The question whether or not some corporation may be headed by a tech hero with an admirable, if not exciting, life story may be headed by a ruthless, vain asshat who claims rugged individualism but got his fortune from his pimp daddy. The question will arise before I leave this broken world whether or not some corporation or other should be allowed to project their logo on the face of the moon, whatever phase it's in, whether... Whatever largest size will fit, day and night, it's come up before, but this time it will be imminent, and there will be a period of public debate with the usual powers that be controlling the frame of the conversation and what input gets recognized and what gets ignored, and if things remain on their current course, the people will be oh so close to winning, but they'll lose. And the Nike swoosh or the name Trump or the Amazon erection will appear in day glow green in the sky and no one will like it. It will not improve brand loyalty. It will not make any more than a small circle of snickering associates happy. It will only be there to take a dump on the face of the people and rub it in. Because that is the principle of the thing. This has been the moment of truth.
0: good
2: day i love that we actually know somebody who sat in on a corporate meeting discussing projecting a corporate logo on the moon and the person that you and i know who was in that meeting was the only person according to them who spoke up saying this is a really bad idea and everybody's gonna hate you for putting your logo on the moon
3: (laughs) can't believe it never got farther than that, to be honest with you.
2: I know. I am, too. I will uh, send you an email about what the what company it was that was going to be projecting their logo on the moon, because I don't want to give up any more information about our friend. I
3: feel I, feel I really need that email, though, Chuck, <laughs> I, until I read that email.
2: And uh, you'll be getting a winter hat in the mail, too, sir.
3: Oh, no, really?
2: Yeah, cause you need one. You're in California.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I might go to Mount Shasta. And uh, hide in a crater.
2: Oh, sweet. So you'll need a camping mug then, too.
3: (laughs) I will need a package of all kinds of goodies. I also will need a a Yemeni breakfast of organ meats and eggs.
2: (laughs) That does sound delicious. All right, Jeffy, until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from Hell, which is what are you refusing to
0: concede? Um, F5, because I think that was it, the ones that I read. Let me double check. Oh, uh, update that. again. Yeah, many places closed.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately. That's really sad. I had great Turkish food this week, great Tibetan food last week, but... No more Yemeni food. So is that it?
0: Uh, F5-ing,
2: yes. So the answers I liked the most were uh, Flying Needle. It was close. It was close this time. I promise. It was close. You came in fifth. <laughs> My favorite answers were Mark saying that re- I am going to refu- I refuse to concede That refusing to concede this past election has any bearing on the next four years Warren saying coffee, I can quit any time I want, just not today uh, Cody saying the replay of past arguments in my head as I come up with more clever points I win every damn time Those are great answers, but the winner of this week's question from hell Again, the question from hell is what are you refusing to concede? Hypocrite Reader saying the war on Christmas. Hypocrite Reader, you have won the new gray on black This Is Hell winter hat, which everyone can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. All you have to do is send us your mailing address, Hypocrite Reader, via email or Facebook, and we will get your winter hat to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from Hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? that the pandemic has me on the brink of losing my freaking mind. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell and special thanks to Sarah E for going to this is hell.com and clicking on support and showing your support for completely listener supported. This is hell. thanks Sarah E Alex, who is on Monday's show.
0: Okay. Uh, so on Monday, we're going to be talking someone from the group of perilous who wrote, uh, published the report first 90 days of prisoner resistance to COVID-19 report on the events, data and trends. And when I reached out to that group, to uh, find someone to get in touch with us, the person who got back to us is somebody that we already talked to for something else about the pipeline. That's Duncan Tar, who we talked no to kidding. in uh, March 2019. Yeah. About uh, the Embridge pipeline. Yeah. Uh, for a Commune magazine piece. Uh, he is now working for Perilous, so he got back in touch with us. So we're going to be catching up with him um, about uh, COVID protests in prisons. Awesome. Awesome. Then on Tuesday, uh, we're going to be talking with Teppo Eskelinen, who wrote and uh, is a contributor and an editor of the book, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology.
2: Why is it a Finn who came up with that book?
0: <laughs> and uh, still working out for wednesday jeff will be on wednesday because we're doing no shows on thursday Thanks. but are we doing a patreon show on friday we are doing a Patreon okay, show. okay so we're friday. gonna take off thursday
2: we start every week's live streaming shows here at this is hell.com with daphne revealing this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure was and is vomiting Thanks to all of this week's guests, including journalist, freelance translator, writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom Magazine, Brian Hugh, who was on to talk about the disqualification and then mass resignation of pro-democracy legislators in Hong Kong and what it means for the democracy movement there. Also, thanks to geographer Alastair Bonnet, author of Elsewhere: A Journey into Our Age of Islands. I got so many emails and so many comments from people about how much they enjoyed that conversation. So go. Back and listen to Tuesday's show if you have not heard that conversation yet. Thanks to yesterday's guests Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door: The Dismantling of Public Education in the Future of School, and we'll be discussing that dismantling of public education during the Obama administration on a Patreon podcast tomorrow on Friday. Finally, thanks to today's guest Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler article "Drugs for the People: Rethinking the Global Pharmaceutical Supply Chain." Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing an interview we did only three weeks after Barack Obama was elected president with Kenneth Saltman, who was on to talk about an article he had just co-written with several-time past guest Henry Giroux called Obama's Betrayal of Public Education, Arnie Duncan and the Corporate Model of Schooling. Meanwhile, I'll be freaking out about how my downstairs neighbor tested positive for COVID-19, which is basically what I plan on doing all weekend and throughout the Thanksgiving holiday next week, so I have that to look forward to. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is
3: on my butt.
2: Uh. My
3: demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon
2: tries to put me on a hell right.